Well, the reading is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, starting at verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you'll be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So this evening we continue our series looking at what it means to live as a Christian in our culture, in our society, where if we're honest, it is very hard sometimes to be a Christian. And one of the places that it is perhaps the most difficult and the most challenging for those of us who do think about it is on social media. If somebody was to look at your Twitter feed, if you've got one, or your Instagram or Snapchat stories, would they know that you're a Christian? Not just because you have pictures of sunsets or things, but by the quality of what you say or what you don't say. How you respond to people who disagree with you and how you respond to people perhaps even who attack you, perhaps, for holding a particular thought or belief. It was a famous writer called G.K. Chesterton who said this, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, it's been found difficult and not tried. It's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, it's been found difficult and not tried. In these words that Roger just read to us a few moments ago. Jesus is talking to his followers, outlining what expectations he has for what life in the kingdom of God looks like. He lays out some clear expectations for what life should look like if you live life on Jesus' terms, if you live life according to who Jesus is and under his rule and under his authority. And if we're honest, he, he sets the bar incredibly 
high. I mean, he doesn't say, just do your best. He sets it way, way up there. Think of the context into which Jesus says some of these words. In a country, Palestine, occupied by the greatest and most brutal military power the world had ever seen up to this point and perhaps has ever seen, who ruled by violence and fear and intimidation, who thought nothing of crucifying hundreds, hundreds of people in one day, as they did in Nazareth, just around the time that Jesus grew up. He literally grew up in the shadow of the cross as they crucified hundreds of people on the road from Nazareth to Jerusalem. And crucifixion was a very public deterrent, which essentially said, you mess with us, this is what you get. To people who were living in occupied Palestine, under the rule of military might and dictators, Jesus said, love your enemies. It wasn't some abstract thought. It wasn't some nice idea. Even as Jesus spoke these words, there would have been Roman soldiers listening to the words that Jesus said. Visual aids of how difficult it was to actually do what Jesus was asking them to do. Love your enemies. To a group of people facing oppression and persecution, violence and death in just a few years' time for following Jesus. People that the Romans wanted, as I said, to wipe off the face of the earth. Jesus said, do good to those who hate you. It wasn't an abstract idea. It wasn't a philosophical proposition it was something that Jesus was laying in front of his disciples, in front of his followers, and saying, if you claim to follow me, then I want you to do good to those who will try to kill you. Do good to those who hate you. To a group who would disturb the religious status quo and shake up the religious establishment, Jesus said, bless those who curse you. Those who occupied the positions of power and status within Judaism at the time cursed Jesus. Literally, they thought he was cursed by God because of the way in which he died. But Jesus says to his followers, bless those who curse you. And to the very people, people like Simon and James and John and Andrew and Mary and the others who followed, Jesus, to the people who would lose families and status and jobs and reputations for deciding that Jesus was indeed God's Messiah, Jesus said, pray for those who mistreat you. Now again, Jesus was not laying out some philosophical treatise. He wasn't laying down a curriculum for RMP or religious and moral and philosophical education in advanced higher Jesus was talking to people in first century Palestine faced with a military force and saying, bless those who mistreat you. Bless those who hate you. Love your enemies. To a group of people living in occupied Palestine where they were surrounded by groups agitating for armed rebellion and terrorism, Jesus said, offer your cheek to someone who slaps you. 
Mark very powerfully this morning explained what that actually meant. If you slapped somebody, you would have used your right hand. Your left hand you used for going to the toilet, so you didn't do that. You used your right hand, and you would slap them with the back of your hand, almost dismissing them as a person. If you were then to be offered their other cheek, well, that meant that things were being escalated. Things were being ramped up. That would mean that either the person who had done the slapping would then come back with a fist, or you would step back and say that that other person was your equal, that now there was to be a different sort of discussion. Jesus said, offer your shirt to someone who takes your coat, gives money to anyone who asks for help, and if someone borrows or steals from you, don't demand your stuff back. Draws a cart and horse through restorative justice. If someone steals your stuff, don't demand it back. And on one level, the words of Jesus are simple and straightforward, or as Bishop Tom Wright puts it, two things strike you about the teaching of Jesus. Firstly, it is simple, obvious, clear, direct, and memorable. Second, it is really, really difficult. Love your enemies. Bless those who mistreat you. Bless those who curt you. Pray for the people who are trying to wipe you off the face of the earth. Now, what Jesus wasn't doing, he wasn't replacing a whole set of rules and regulations with a new set. So the people that Jesus was talking to, people in first century Palestine, people who were first century Jews, and, and particularly the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were experts experts at making up new rules and regulations that said whether you were in or whether you were out, whether you were religious or whether you weren't. And they were fantastic. They were experts at, at piling stuff onto people. Now, what Jesus isn't doing is it's not as though he's taking off a, a pile of, of, of rules off his followers and saying, hang on, bless those who mistreat you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who curse you. So that in the end, his followers are going, actually, I'd prefer the old lot back. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is doing something very, very different. What Jesus is doing is he's describing what life is like in the kingdom of God, what life is like if you follow Jesus. And following Jesus primarily is about a relationship. It isn't about rules. It's not about do this, don't do that, say this, don't say that. It's, it's more in terms of, well, if you love me, then you will do this. Confession time this morning, I, I took my wife, Kathy, breakfast in bed. I got a cup of tea for her, and I, and I got some porridge, and I got some raspberries, and I put the raspberries in the porridge, not in the cup of tea, made that mistake before, and I took upstairs the porridge and the cup of tea, and I put them by Kathy's bedside. Now, why did I do that? Did I do it to earn some brownie points? Yes. <laughs> did I do it for self-preservation? Yes. But fundamentally and primarily, I did it because I love Kathy. And I know that Kathy loves me. So it was done not because I'm a husband, then after 30 years of marriage, I've learned that husbands do stuff like that. I've done it because 
I love Kathy, and Kathy loves me. Would Kathy think any worse of me if I hadn't taken her breakfast in bed? Moving quickly on. Um, <laughs> no, she wouldn't. She would not stop loving me. And entering into the kingdom of God, living life under the rule and authority of Jesus, is living life in relationship with him. And once you're in a relationship with somebody, then you want to live your life in such a way that it pleases them. Not because you have to, but because you want to. That's the fundamental difference between Christianity and every other world faith. Every other world faith or belief system says, do this, don't do that, and you will earn somehow God's approval. Christianity flips it on its head and says, once you know that you are loved, once you know that you are accepted, once you know that you're forgiven, then you are to lead lives of forgiveness. You are to live lives of love. You are to show mercy. Do you notice that last verse that Roger ended the reading? Be merciful because God is merciful. We're to reflect God's nature because that's why we're called in that reading, children of the Most High, because people can tell that we're God's children because we behave with the family likeness. If you look at my kids, there is no doubt that they're my kids. There's no doubt that they are my kids because of one salient physical feature. These babies. <laughs> All three kids have them. They don't want them, they didn't pray for them, but they've got them. These eyebrows are clear markers that Josh, Nathan, and Iona belong to me. They can be nobody else's. The family likeness is there. When people look at your life, when people look at my life, do they see the family likeness? Do they see that we resemble our Heavenly Father? Would they be able to say, oh, you're children of the Most High because of the way in which you speak, because of the way in which you live, because of the way in which you spend your money, because of the way in which you spend your time, because of the way in which you drive, because of the way in which you operate on social media? What Jesus here is offering, you see, is not a new rule book to replace Judaism or the Old Testament law, but what he's describing is a new way of living, a new attitude of heart, a life lived full of glorious, extravagant, absurd generosity, because that is who God is. The God that you and I believe in is a God of radical, unconditional, outrageous grace, love, mercy and patience and kindness and the kingdom of God resembles the God of the kingdom some people even today and, and you see it in some politicians you see it in some sociologists you, you hear it from some of the new atheists you hear it sometimes even if we're honest from some people who would claim to be Christians they want the kingdom they want life to be better they want society to be kinder. They want the world in which we live to be a gentler, more loving place. But the problem is, you can't have the kingdom without the king. 
You have to have the king in order to have the kingdom. Some people look at uh, verses like verse 31 in this passage, where Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do to you. And people say, ah, in the 15th, 16th century, it became known as the golden rule. And people said, ah, you see, all faiths are the same. Because if you look at Islam, if you look at Judaism, if you look at Buddhism, if you look at Hinduism, if you look at what Sikhs believe, as well as Christians, they've all got this golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do unto you. But that's not what Jesus is saying. To take that verse out of context all by itself is to miss the fact of who is saying the words. It's to miss the fact that this person above all knew what it was to pray for those who persecuted him, to love those who hated him, to bless even those who hit him. He didn't just offer them the other cheek. He stretched out his arms and let them put nails through his wrists and feet. If anybody can claim the authority to say, bless those who persecute you, love those who hate you, love your enemies, it was the person of Jesus Christ. And he claimed to be God himself. He claimed to be the one at the center of this kingdom, not just any religious teacher like any other religious teacher. And the question comes for you and to me this evening. What would life be like if we actually put into practice these words that Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago? What would your life be like? What would my life be like if we actually did what Jesus told us to do? How different would our lives be if we actually believed that Jesus meant the words that he said 2,000 years ago? How would we spend our time or our money differently? How would we drive differently? How would we interact with people in relationships differently? How would our presence in the workplace differ? If we actually asked Jesus to help us, not to do our best, not to try and pull ourselves up by our shoelaces, not to try and, and earn God's approval, but because we know that we're loved, because we know that we are forgiven, because we know that we're accepted, because we know that we're valued, because Jesus has done that on the cross for us, the knowledge that we are loved and valued and accepted and forgiven then sets us free to live lives of acceptance and love and value and mercy and patience and kindness towards the people around us in the workplace, in the office, at school, or at college, or university. People that, if we're honest, never mind loving, we have a hard time liking. And people who, if we're honest, actually we know don't like us. Sometimes it's easier to love our enemies who we find difficult. Sometimes the harder challenge is to love or even like people who we know don't like us. That's a whole different ballgame. 
But if we narrow it down to one particular sphere of life, because we could go on and on, and I'm fairly well known for going on and on, if we just apply it to one area this evening, social media, what would that look like in your life? Imagine how different it would be if you or I applied these words to Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and Facebook. In a recent interview in GQ magazine, uh, Pharrell Williams, who cheered us all up by singing uh, or writing that song, Happy, uh, a few years ago, um, he was was asked about what he thought about life and about faith, because he does pray, uh, he he, he says that faith is very important to him, but he made this stunning observation. He said, online, your spirit is free to be whatever it wants to be, and what you see online, warfare. Flipping warfare. Although he didn't use the word flipping. He said a word that I can't say in church. And if we're honest, that's what we see. Mark this morning challenged us to take out our phones legitimately during a talk in church and not pretend that we were listening to the talk or making notes or reading the Bible app but to look at Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter or Facebook and to put the word Brexit into Twitter and just to look at what comes up and to count how many threads it would be before we came something up with something that was offensive or aggressive or disagreeable. That Fraser was sitting next to me, and I can't tell you the, the picture that Fraser got on his Twitter feed. I Literally, I can't tell you. It was horrendous. And that's the reality of the world in which we live. That's the reality that more and more people are spending so much of their time in. Tinder has been described as the coming together of left and right to pull the world apart. And the reality is that our screens occupy more and more and more of our time. Many of us demonstrate uh, the, the, the outward manifestations of an addiction. If we go for very long without having either our tablet or our phone in our hand. Research shows that as a result of these things, we're not healthy, well-adjusted, happier people. This photographer has taken a whole uh, set of photographs. Uh, You can look at it, ironically, online. Um, But where he has taken the screens out of the photograph. So on this photograph, you have a married couple who are lying there with their back to each other. But look how odd they look without the phones. Look at their body language to each other. Look where their faces are pointing. Look where their eyes are looking. They've literally got their backs to each other. And the reality of our society, of our culture, is that we are, in some ways, we think, the most connected society that has ever been, and yet we are the most disconnected and disjointed society and culture that there has ever been. Where we think because we have friends on Facebook, we have friends. But in reality, how many of your friends 
or followers are actually your friends, are actually your followers. When Jesus said, come follow me, he didn't have social media in mind. He had something far more important and far more profound. Research shows that giving up social media results in people being 40% happier in five days. And yet we carry on tweeting. We carry on posting on Facebook. We carry on Snapchatting. We carry on contributing to that Instagram thread. The divisions in society are widened and amplified by the views expressed on social media and other people's responses. Bill Bishop says this, As a result, we now live in a giant feedback loop where hearing our own thoughts about what's right and wrong bounce back to us by the television shows that we watch, the newspapers and books that we read, the blogs that we visit online, the sermons that we hear, and the neighborhood that we live in. So we follow people who think like us. Our friends on Facebook are people who think like us. We follow people on Twitter who think like us. Occasionally, a rogue element will come in and somebody who thinks differently will appear on our Facebook thread, Snapchat, whatever, Twitter thing, and that's when the guns come out. And that's the reality, as we prayed earlier for MPs, who are just getting absolutely pelted every day, every hour of every day with death threats on social media. What's happened to our world where we just create these echo chambers online, where we're just hearing what we want to hear and listening to people who will agree with us? One Australian church leader, Mark Sayers, gave his congregation this challenge. He said, why don't you try this week to be a pastor of peace and peacefulness in a digital Babylon. What would it mean for you and for me if people looked at my Facebook page or your Twitter account or your Snapchat or Instagram thread and they noticed there was something different? They noticed that there was a graciousness, there was a kindness, there was an openness, there was a patience, there was a willingness to listen, there was a willingness to engage. Sometimes to recognize that things are getting overheated and actually you need to pull out of a conversation because it's not doing you any good and it's not doing the person that you're talking to any good. Imagine this week putting the words of Jesus into practice, not just where people can see you at work, at school, in the home, at university or college, but also where people can't see you. And that's the danger of social media. Because, as Pharrell Williams says, you can be whoever you want to be online. You don't have to use your real name or your real persona. You can create an avatar. You can create a new identity. You can be whoever you want, and you don't have to be accountable for it. That's why people just say things online that they would never say face-to-face. But they think it's okay to put it on Twitter or Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram or use this incredibly old acronym. I, I almost blush to suggest it to you, because this has been around as, as long, I think it, was, it just came in the early church, it, it just came in after Jesus 
had ascended into heaven. It's, it's just taking very simply the word think and applying a different question each time to a letter of the word think. So before you post, before you tweet, before you put something on Instagram or, or Snapchat, just think, is it true? Not just because you think it's true, but is it factually true? Is it helpful? Is it interesting? Is it necessary? And above all, is it kind? And if it's not true, if it's not helpful, if it's not interesting, if it's not necessary, and it's not kind, don't do it. You'll feel better, and the person that is seeing your thread will feel better, and you think, yeah, but they won't know that I haven't done it. Yes, they will, because they'll feel better. Imagine how they would feel if you did it, if you posted that. And you think, yeah, but I, I, would, oh, oh, I would feel so... No, you wouldn't. Look at that body language immediately. It's very hard to tweet with fists like that. Imagine if we put the words of Jesus into practice on social media. I'm astounded, if I'm being honest, astounded sometimes. Seeing on social media, people that I know, people who claim to be followers of Christ, people who claim to be church leaders, and thinking, why do you think that of all the spheres of life, somehow social media is exempt from being affected by your Christian faith? Because Jesus knows what you tweet. Jesus knows what you post. Jesus knows the Instagram or Snapchat. And there's already huge questions about people saying, what would it be for future employers? How would they feel if they saw your Snapchat or Instagram story? Would you get that job? Well, never mind your future employer. What about God? What about Jesus? How do you think he feels? Because he can see it, and he does read it. Jesus said to his followers, Be merciful, just as your Father God is merciful. And those words come at us down the centuries, across broadband and 4G and 5G. And they're challenging. If you love me, Jesus said, people will know that you're my disciples. If they look at our social media presence, would people notice a difference in your life and in my life?